Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Hello, everyone. I'm Louise Fipsempt, your host of Blink of an Eye podcast and the founder of Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. We all know how life can change in the blink of an eye. Please reach out to me at louise at blinkofaneye.org about your experiences with trauma and trauma healing. You might wonder about the role of trauma and trauma healing in the corporate world. Join me as our next guest is a dynamic force in senior leadership consulting, integrating an understanding of trauma and the transformative power of trauma healing for executive leaders. She's a magnetic speaker and workshop leader, igniting change in corporate leaders nationwide. Stay tuned. I am blessed to introduce you to Amy Fox. Amy Elizabeth Fox is the esteemed founder and CEO of Mobius Executive Leadership, a pinnacle in senior leadership consultancy. A seasoned speaker and workshop leader, she's graced prominent national industry events and empowered corporate leaders nationwide in areas including leadership, communication, and negotiation. Her earlier accomplishments included directing organizational development at Wellspace, a healthcare startup, and playing pivotal roles in initiatives led by luminaries, such as Vice President Al Gore and Carl Sagan. Amy's versatile career also extends to the realm of psychotherapy. She's a certified executive coach in emotional intelligence by Hay McBear and Associates. She's an alumna of Wesleyan University with a BA and a master's in counseling psychology from Leslie College. She resides in Wesley, Massachusetts and is coming back to what has been her passion for years, working with others in the field of trauma and trauma healing. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much, Louise. What a delight to be with you, really. A delight to see you again. And, you know, Amy Fox, deep thinker, magical workshop leader, 
I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a sense of who you are. Sure. What a generous question. Maybe I'll speak about what feels most important to me in my work these days, Louise, which is really helping organizations and leaders to understand that it's very difficult to create the kind of organizational cultures many of us aspire to create after COVID. Organizations that are more inclusive, have a deeper sense of belonging, know how to create psychological safety, which is so critical for teams to innovate together and work together, collaborate effectively. You can't be someone who is an instrument of all of that for the people that you lead if you haven't done some of your own inner work and your inner healing. Mm -hmm. And this is the deep connection that I see between my study in psychological process work and trauma work and the work that I now do as an organizational consultant and a leadership expert. I'm trying to really integrate healing processes, emotional self-awareness processes for people who are stewarding large organizations and leading many, many people so that they can become themselves instruments of that kind of safety, love, belonging, inclusion. So in a nutshell, that's my work, I would say. Mm, Thank you. Mm. I'm wondering when the nexus happened between your understanding human nature and leadership, or did you begin with leadership and then rediscover the nexus to the importance of trauma and self-awareness. What's been the journey with your leadership work with Mobius? Well, Mobius really has its foundations in the work of my sister, who's my co-founder of the organization, who you know well, Erica Ariel Fox. And Erica is a longtime lecturer at Harvard Law School, where she's been affiliated for two decades with the program on negotiation. And in Erica's work there, The negotiation project really started out looking at substantive negotiations, both in the private sector, but also in hotbed conflict geopolitical circumstances and giving best practice advice for how to get what they then called win-win or principled negotiation outcomes, being able to, rather than seeing the other party as your adversary across the table, sort of see instead that the two parties are together trying to do joint problem solving. And they introduced into the culture or into the business world the notion that you would do value creation, look for joint gains and distributive gains before doing the value distributive dimension of a negotiation so that you could get more optimized outcomes. And that model is still best practice for used by everyone from the State Department to lawyers uh, around the world for understanding how you prepare for and conduct a negotiation. But they found as they went out with the model increasingly the personality of the parties, the deep hurt between the two parties, the longstanding resentment and anger and hostility between the parties made it difficult for people to execute that good advice because they were too emotional and the thing felt too personal. They were too identified with their side of the conflict. And so the law school started researching how to really understand the psychological dimension of negotiation and joint problem solving Our very visionary friends, Bruce Patton, Doug Stone, Sheila Heen, Erica, her colleague Scott Pepit, all got very interested in trying to add a sort of sophisticated human dynamics understanding to these guidelines. And they published a book that was the follow-up to the negotiation book. The negotiation book is, of course, Roger Fisher and Bill Urey and uh, Bruce's wonderful book, Getting to Yes. And the follow-up book was called Difficult Conversations. Difficult Conversations added to that canon a lot of advice about how a negotiator or an executive 
or government official could manage to decompress or de-escalate some of the emotional charge in the conflict in order to do more rational, linear problem-solving and distributive negotiation and mediation. And that body of advice was published in a subsequent book called Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. I had the great privilege of teaching with and studying from Bruce and Doug and Sheila and Erica and Scott for many years and seeing how potent it was to give people a window into the interpersonal dynamics that were getting them stuck, uh, particularly around charged business issues. And Erica, in her own coaching at the law school, started to see that there was actually a third dimension to effective mediation and, and conflict resolution, which had more to do with the ways we get in our own way. So if the first book, Getting to Us, asked, you know, uh, gave the best practice advice, separate the people from the problem, meaning trying not to get derailed by the emotionality, but really focusing on the substance. The second advice was sort of the answer to the question, what if the people are the problem? Um, and you need to do something to rebuild trust, build rapport, build goodwill, build a shared sense of purpose to the discussion before you get into the content. And Erica was asking perhaps the final question, which is, what if I'm the problem? What if the ways I'm reacting and the ways I'm conceiving and framing the context and the other party and my goals and my understanding of what really matters are really getting in the way of my making effective moves, meaningful concessions, listening well, speaking honestly and vulnerably and openly about what matters to me? And so Erica started a long path of really exploring and mapping the terrain of the inner life of the leader she published her body of work in a book called Winning from Within. And I've been teaching, had the privilege of teaching that body of work now for the last couple of years. And what's beautiful about it is Erica uses Jungian archetypes to help people quickly draw the cartography of the main voices in their head. You know, we have lots of different voices in your head. And if, as you hear me saying that, you're thinking, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't have voices in my head. That is, of course, the inner voice talking to you. It's a universal phenomenon. But it isn't a unified phenomenon, meaning we have different facets, different dimensions, different energies. One way to think about that is we have four quadrants of the brain, each with their own intelligences and their own orientation. Eric encapsulates this with four archetypes, which she calls the big four. The dreamer, which is the dimension that is has imagination and intuition and can envision a world that's not yet here, sort of a future whispering capacity, a sensing capacity. And the, you know, creativity of novelty and innovation um, that's so critical to every business now. The second one is the, she describes as the lover, which is sort of the quality of your heart. It's the emotional domain. It's the relational domain. It's the collaborative domain. It's also the part of us that can create an organization where people feel cherished and like they matter and that their career goals and sense of purpose matter. The third archetype is the warrior, which is the part of us that stands for our convictions and ethics and holds our life as a leader to some kind of alignment to our values. It's also the part of us that speaks up and confronts things when they're unjust or unfair and stands for, in an active way, our principles and practices. It's also the part of us that sets boundaries and makes priorities and monitors our balance to our life. So sometimes people will have, for example, a very strong capacity to speak up and an underdeveloped capacity to say no. So it isn't that you have sort of one of these archetypes fully formed and others less. It's much more nuanced than that and much more fascinating when you start to engage the material as a leader to investigate your own strengths and your own stretches. Uh, and the fourth one is the thinker, 
which I think in an increasingly complex world is about cognitive agility and the ability to hold your own expertise and experience and ideas as a hypothesis to be tested Mm -hmm. and staying sort of nimbly porous and open to new ideas and other people's perspectives and being able to be moved and, and persuaded by what you might be missing. And so that kind of cognitive agility and the willingness to see a picture that's complex and multifaceted and not to sort of truncate it into a too simple story, that's some of the art form of a sort of evolved thinker. And Erica's hypothesis, which bears out in the trainings that we do with many, many leaders around the world, is that most of us have one of these as a strong suit, as sort of our personal brand. We do it very comfortably. We do it very naturally and very immediately. And usually very mature and successful leaders also have two of the other three online and available as part of their natural repertoire. But often we see leaders having a fourth archetype that they don't express so much and and perhaps even have internally a bit of an alienated relationship with that facet or dimension. So for example, if somebody had a parent who was a serial entrepreneur who had great dreams but failed often, they may have decided that the dreamer facet is not safe and they're going to be very practical and very realistic and you know make their career one that's full of success versus risk. And they lose that sort of spark of possibility and that natural dispensation we all have to dream and to yearn and to aspire to big things. And then there's kind of a dullness or a flatness to their leadership development. Or if somebody had an early hurt, perhaps they closed off their heart because it didn't feel safe to keep an open heart. And so they'll be very good at execution and very good at strategy, but they won't be quite as good at teaming and creating a sense of family among the people that work for them and a and appreciation and gratitude. So for each leader, you you use the big four as a kind of roadmap of helping them understand what are their natural superpowers and escalating their use of those and the ability to use them in lots of different contexts. But equally importantly, it's a developmental model. It's not just a strength-based model. So we are asking people to look at what's not working well in their leadership development. And particularly, Louise, this is perhaps the intersection of my sister and my work, to look at some of the early childhood antecedents to why their relationship with that particular archetype got turned off or distant and to do the healing work that's required to really bring it fully back online and on fire. Mm-mm. Well, we are getting a real sense of the years since we all taught together at, up at Harvard's program on negotiation and this amazing, the initiative that we were all about to see the workshops, how they have unfolded for leaders. And now this third dimension that I've been so interested in as well in the internal development of leaders and of people, just everyday people going about their own circle of influence of leadership, whether it's as parents or whether it's as sisters or brothers or colleagues or, and then of course, you know, leading companies or committees and actively involved in their community and service work. All these amazing people to bring them into the opportunity to explore oneself. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the things that's hugely beautiful about Erica's model and her methodology really is that it's as applicable to somebody who wants to be more effective on their school board or more effective as a parent or more effective as a friend as it is for somebody who's, you know, running a global operations of a manufacturing company. 
it's such intimate work that it's really about the inner life sort of end stop, you know, and, and in that way, anyone can lead, anyone can contribute to a world that has more conviction or more kindness or more caring. Every one of us can, in, in our sphere of influence, unlock these beautiful leadership qualities or transformational mindsets and capabilities and use them to wonderful effect for the people and things we care about. That's right. I'm really thinking about, in our series on trauma healing learnings, just how important it is for each person, each listener, to know that one of the greatest contributions we can give to our circles of influence and to our communities is to explore the pains and the hurts of our lives and how resilient we can be, have been, and what that does look like to be the full dreamer and the full lover and the and the warrior when called upon and the great thinker. And I'm wondering for you and your work, Amy, that I've so admired and also your support of your sister's work, our my dear friend Erica, what is one of the key learning pieces for how it is that one begins to have some awareness of their own life traumas that doesn't have to be so scary or create burdens or barriers for them? Where do you start in your work with that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, maybe it's useful to give your listeners a very easy, accessible definition of trauma so that we don't, we destigmatize it and, and universalize it. Trauma is the internal emotional, physical, and neurological response to any event in your life that was too overwhelming in that moment to process. And the variety of ways that that shows up is, it's vast. There's many, many, many different things. And there's no universal threshold at which something external event would be considered traumatic. It's whatever you experience as hard to process. And that's different for each of us. So I think it's one thing to say, I think one thing that helps is just to say, this is all of us have either firsthand trauma or are the descendants of ancestors who had traumatic events. And we know from epigenetics, as well as from neuroscience, as well as from psychology, that the implication of parents or grandparents are, are you know, back in our lineage, having had some kind of a traumatic experience that they didn't have a chance or the right resources to integrate and heal means that there were usually gaps or missing dimensions in our parenting and the field of attuned love when we were raised as children. So it's very possible that nothing sort of overtly difficult or challenging or dramatically tragic happened in your life, although it does, in fact, happen to many of us. And yet there was an absence of attunement, receptivity to your needs, deep listening to your emotions, holding and affection. In many, many families, if you go back two generations, you have war, you have violence, you have racism, you have colonialism, poverty, forced immigration, refugee experiences, corporal punishment, lots and lots of things that as a society we did that we now know have tremendous psychological costs for the people bearing them. And the aftermath of all that means that many of us in our generation, while perhaps we didn't suffer something so overtly dramatic, we did miss some of the early attachment, holding, containment, reflection, mirroring, love, yeah, sense of safety that is so critical for developmental success. And th those things are equally burdensome for people as they grow up. They, they wind up 
living with a variety of survival strategies that were very, very intelligent and very innovative in the moment when the psyche developed them because they were managing a difficult situation or filling in the blanks of some kind of an absence. But they become dysfunctional and and destructive later in life. And so my work in part, our work in part, is to help people slow down and start to really notice the ways that they're managing life through fear-based strategies and fear-based reactions. So one of the exercises that we often do in programs is to ask people to pick one moment in the last couple of weeks where something really upset you and to just jot down in a notebook at that moment of the upset, not five minutes later when you had sort of peace of mind and you realized in hindsight you could handle it differently, but in the moment that you were really triggered and reactive, what did you feel and how did you behave? And virtually all the time, when you map the behaviors to the neuroscience of what happens when people perceive something to be genuinely threatening to their survival, in a survival threat, uh, we react with a kind of fight or flight, a very narrow repertoire of survival strategies. And those are the same behaviors that we start to see in the workplace. And of course, that we see in families. You get escalating aggression, you get people shutting down, you get people going silent and stone cold, you get people getting combative and intellectually rigid, and you get people blaming each other, you get people feeling helpless, they shocked, betrayed, upset. And all of that emotional terrain is pointing to the level of threat that we feel in the workplace on a daily basis. And most of that threat is an interpretation we're making of the current situation That harkens back to something that was perceived much earlier in life as genuinely threatening. So you have to have a little bit of an emotional interest to start to look, okay, if that particular situation upset me and it didn't upset the person next to me, what is it about me and my interiority and my life history and my life experience, my beliefs, my fears that I walk with that are getting evoked or activated in this particular business circumstance? And the minute I start that inquiry, That self-observation, what Erica calls the lookout ability of noticing your own interior experience starts to give you a little breath, a little sense of presence, a little bit more optionality, a little lowers the temperature of the sort of internal churn of reaction. And that skill of noticing yourself and sort of navigating yourself back to center, that's one of the most key skills we're trying to give leaders to handle, particularly situations that are more complex, more ambiguous more unpredictable, which is likely to create a kind of context in which people are more fragile and more likely to get scared or get reactive. It's the very um, terrain of the blink of an eye nonprofit navigators terrain. Mm. It's what they're walking into as spinal cord injury survivors themselves with incredible wisdom, but also into the eye of the hurricane and the families in shock in the first hours and days and weeks and months of spinal cord injury. And so yeah. taking this same model of a skill set. It's important to distinguish, Louise, because you're pointing to something so poignant and powerful. Those families are actually not scared because of something that happened in their early childhood. They're scared because they're in an imminent situation that's intense and heartbreaking and and a serious challenge. I do want to make a distinction between the acute moment of something that is genuinely challenging to handle and metabolize and requires all the holding and love of the community that you're helping to build around people versus an everyday work situation in which somebody simply says something, you know, interrupts you in a meeting 
uh, and all of a sudden your adrenaline is pumping through your veins and your jaw is clenched and you no longer really are at choice how you respond. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. I think it's so important to make that distinction for our listeners because the objective traumatic experience, the acute one that you and I were just talking about hypothetically with spinal cord injury, but it could be anything that you line up 10 people and everybody says that is an acute trauma versus the reactivity that we can have a month, years, decades later in our lives related to unresolved, unmetabolized trauma in our lives is really what you've opened our conversation on that's so rich and interesting to me too, especially as we define trauma as not just an event, but an experience that might not also be our own personal experience that we have awareness of, but one that's been handed down to us genetically and through our ancestors, not, not to mention things that have happened globally that influence cultures of people. And just to slow it down and maybe for our listeners to take that in, something that you and I are both very interested in, and the work of Thomas Hubel, and what we're learning about how it is that we can be more aware and really feel into the notion and the experience of another without having to have had experienced it ourselves as a starting place. 
Yeah. You're mentioning the profound and I find very inspiring work of my teacher, Thomas Hubel, who uh, has written several books related to our topic today, Louise. One, his book of a few years ago called Healing Collective Trauma, which exactly, as you said, was really bringing to the forefront of our, you know, universal awareness, the dimensionality and multi-generational nature of trauma and the degree to which the trauma that our ancestors have walked walks in us in many different ways. And his new book, which is coming out in September called Attuned, which is really about the repair process and the restorative process for trauma, which lives in the heart of relation and attunement and connection. One of the things that we find in our leadership programs is how significant it is when for the first time, often people get to tell the stories of the beauty in their lives and the pain in their lives and to feel witnessed in that and received in that and with no invitation to make it dilute it, but to share it in its full gravity and its full intensity. And that's a training that I think is so critical for leaders. I, I think a real leader, given where we are in society today, a real leader has to be one who's a wide open embrace to receive anybody's story and is a walking invitation for people to tell the truth of their lives. And I think the move from privacy and secrets to this being something that has our collective attention and our collective commitment, the receptivity of each other's stories and narratives is part of the restorative process that's underway now. And I think it's a revolution in culture. When we stop believing that only a nuclear family is supposed to hold each other and start believing that a community and a world has to hold all of it. And it's our obligation to extend our heart, extend our time, extend our attention, extend our listening to one another as a, as a practice, as a spiritual practice of repair. Gosh, you know that we're all connected and all one, like this big hologram of each other and all of those who preceded us. I'm wondering, Amy, in your work with leaders of organizations and political leaders and leaders of large groups, how has the work of trauma and trauma healing landed? I know how you might open it up with them, like just think of a difficult situation and realize the reactivity from that and how that might relate to something that was recallable, but also something that might not be. How is it that you're experiencing leaders who are embracing or not embracing the invitation to explore the impact of trauma on their leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think it's perhaps useful to say I very, very rarely use the word trauma in my leadership programs, mostly because it has such a stigma in our society. And then people think of it and assume that I'm saying something that is much larger and wider than what I mean to be pointing at. So I usually go in the door of uh, what really matters to leaders. What really matters to leaders is to inspire followership, to build a better world, to drive successful innovation, to have a workforce that's thriving and engaged and committed to their shared mission and vision and values. And all of those things, as I said at the beginning, really do require some inner alignment and some inner competencies in order to foster an organization that has those qualities of culture and has the fabric of an organization that people feel committed to and bring their best to and feel willing to endure difficult moments, difficult conversations, difficult choices, downturns, 
you know, pandemics, all of that. We know that, you know, the road ahead is going to be fraught with lots of different kinds of challenges. And in order to create a resilient organization, I believe you have to create an emotionally healthy and alive and intimate organization. So that's a sort of premise, I would say. What I find is that calling attention to how organizational culture has not been human-centric, but rather has been really mechanistic, most organizations, unless they've consciously pivoted towards being transformational in their orientation, most organizations are anti-emotion, anti-body, anti-spirit, anti-intimacy. They put a very strong premium on personal resilience, which basically means I'm not supposed to need anyone or need anything. I'm supposed to be able to operate in, in a disembodied, disemotioned way. And to ask leaders to really look at what are the small and large ways you're numbing yourself in order to live a life in which the majority of your day you spend disconnected from what you care about and from your in, you know inner life. And we live in a very dissociated way, separate from ourselves. And then we interact with one another in very routinized and shielded ways that are far from authentic or vulnerable or connected. And most people, almost everyone that I've ever taught, and I'm talking about thousands of leaders, intuitively and immediately understand that that's their experience and that's the experience of everyone around them. And when you ask them what's the benefit of that, since we all do it, there must be some reason why that's the norm. They can name things that are sort of obvious. They'll say it's more efficient. Everyone knows what's expected. We are able to bring a sort of neutrality to different business problems that's more cognitive and not caught fraught with emotion. But when you pivot their attention to the cost, they say things that to me are far more pressing and poignant. They say, I feel lonely. I worry that I'm going to be exposed as an imposter. I find my day very empty and isolating. I don't feel like I can ask for help. I mean, I've had many, many people who will sit in a room with 20 of their partners from a professional services firm or a company that they've been working together as colleagues for 20 years. They don't even know that the other person has a child with you know, a disability or has lost, been, you know, had a parent in an you know, assisted living home. They don't know the interiority of one another's lives and the things that each person is sitting with in their heart and in their world. And therefore, they can't possibly extend gestures of support, gestures of mutuality, gestures of reciprocity in really concrete, practical ways that would make the workplace, you know, a hive of compassion instead of a set of cubicles. And so, I find that almost universally, when you create an ecosystem experience that's steeped in love, steeped in the assumption that we're meant to care for each other and that we're meant to be connected in meaningful ways, almost everybody melts. No one likes the game the way it is. They just don't realize there's an alternative. And, and it's really only recently that the body of the canon of leadership development has been talking about organizational learning, personal mastery, emotional intelligence a developmental orientation, adaptive capacities as the key, the linchpin for high performance. So now I feel like we have a sort of collective understanding of how critical this community building dimension of leadership really is. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about the path of development of a transformational leader or practitioner. Once, while you are not using the language of trauma, you are certainly inviting people to the experience. I'm just also thinking about how when anyone can say this experience of feeling lonely or alone, 
or separated, that of course is the trauma experience. And in our work too, we often don't talk about the big T or the little T, the trauma word, because people feel they're going to be diagnosed and that they're going to be seen as ill or that there's going to have to be some new medication or they're going to be shunted in some way. But to really invite us all into realizing it's part of this human experience and there's a path, an invitation to develop. And it might begin even with this incredibly compassionate view of our not feeling whole in even the four, if we look, think about Erica's, you know, four archetypes yeah. that our ancestry. That's right. There's a couple of things that spurs for me, Louise. One is Thomas says this beautiful thing that loneliness is not a natural emotion. It's a movement away of self-protection that happens often very young and as a habit. And so I think the first thing is really to have to go towards the parts of us that have learned to protect ourselves, to guard ourselves, to be a bit behind a protective shield, to approach those parts with tenderness, with a real understanding that that withdrawal was life-saving once upon a time, and to create a climate in which the things which in other contexts, you know, people get coaching and feedback that they're doing certain things that don't serve them or don't work. And that's understandable when you just take a behavioral approach to this, but when you take a trauma lens to it, um, you would have reverence for those very same, quote, dysfunctions, because you would understand that they were early childhood survival strategies that just haven't yet been integrated and metabolized by the person. So the first thing is... Hold on, just pause for a moment before the first thing. Let's just take that in. The reverence that all of us can have for ourselves, self-compassion. That's right. And for others, knowing that whatever is lingering that's so not working now as an adult or getting in the way was something very um, necessary and intelligent for protecting the young child or the young person from their wanting to survive and live. And they were just doing the best that they could. We were just doing the best that we could. We're all doing the best that we can in a context that sometimes is very impinging and very difficult. I think that's a critically important. And I love what you said, Louise. It's it's both about self-compassion and self-understanding and self-patience, as well as, as extending that same generosity of perspective and wisdom of understanding to everybody we work with. There's this phrase in the business world, which I critique on a regular basis of, I'm going to hold people accountable. And for me, that notion of holding people accountable means I'm going to punish you for what you're not getting right. And I'm trying to suggest sort of the antithesis of that. Let me really understand why are you doing what you're doing? In what way does that make real sense? And in what context did it make real sense? Yes. And only when I do a bow to that. Do I have the privilege and liberty to say that you could do something else? Yes, exactly. It must have worked at some point and worked very well because you're here today. Exactly. And often people feel like those coping strategies or survival strategies, they they relate to them as hindrances, as obstacles to their own 
leadership expression. And of course, that is the way they're playing out. They are things that are difficult, but that's not the right stance or that's not the right starting place from which to engage this kind of a healing journey. I really love what you said. And I also wanted to circle back to what you said about Erica's model. I mean, healing trauma is, you know, depending on what happened and how it lives in your system, that can be a long journey. And people often need professional help, as you said. People often need a community in which to grieve and to have the emotions and memories that are stored in our bodies and our tissues and and doing that in ways that are really informed by best practice and being held by people who have the trauma expertise and therapeutic expertise to do that. That's, you know, for, for many people, certainly it was for me, a very critical part of a healing journey. But I think there are micro steps one can take. And Erica's big four, I think, just give us a beautiful, very accessible opportunity to start thinking, what are the facets of who I really am that I don't give expression to? And how could I get an unlock to unleash more of my natural potential? And what's so beautiful, Thomas talks about this also, and I I loved it the first time I heard him speak of it. We don't have to teach people how to love. Like we naturally love. We don't have to teach people how to grow. We naturally grow. We don't have to teach people how to learn. We naturally learn. We're just sort of systematically removing or addressing the stones that are on the way of the river moving in its natural progression. And once those stones get out of the way, the water knows where to go. (laughs) I love that too. Something much larger than we are that will always keep us on the right course when we remove those stones and sometimes those barriers. Well, you're saying a different thing that's also exquisite and worth saying, which is not only is it our natural propensity to heal and our natural birthright to grow and and to express the beautiful gifts we came into life to bring, there's a a higher intelligence that is also on the side of restoration and renewal and life force being unlocked. And I always feel that when I'm teaching, Louise, I always feel the presence of a kind of blessing field that life wants a chance to hear these stories, wants to give people a chance to reopen their hearts, and that all of us are elevated and inspired to be part of that healing process. So I'm wondering, Amy, in your work with executives about this divine even, if we might go so far, I will, but this higher intelligence, if that enters into your work when you're working with executives. Yeah, I mean, I think that divine presence or that divine grace finds its way into the room in lots of different ways. You know, I I had a woman come into a program a few weeks ago and she had been very brutalized as a child, beaten as a child. She was in her mid-60s, I think. And up until the program, she had only told her life partner the story of her childhood. And on the second day of the program, she chose to confide it in one of our practitioners, one of our transformational coaches. And on the third day of the program, she chose to confide it in me. It's a very precious conversation. And on the last night of the program, she invited the whole group to stand in a circle around her And she had the sensitivity and self-attunement to ask us to close our eyes because she wasn't prepared yet to be witnessed in telling the story. But she shared it with the entire group. And you could feel a kind of, I would say every single person felt the enormity of what it meant to have the honor of her giving us that story to custodian and to be witness to. And I don't know another word for a moment like that other than holy. You're in the presence of somebody repairing generations of violence and declaring that that's not what they'll pass on to their children. 
and to the generations of our shared future. And it just moves you to tears. There's no other, you're kind of in a state of awe at the profundity of what you're witnessing. And that happens over and over and over by a group deciding to take a leap of faith with one another and take the risk to take this journey together. And it always has a quality of sanctity, always. So beautiful. Almost as if our strength strong enough to be so vulnerable fosters these holy moments. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think there's other elements that make it more possible. So slowing people down, slowing the conversation down so there's more space, more room to feel, more room to say something that you haven't said before, more room to receive and really take in what somebody is sharing. We move at such a fast pace that there's a sort of intrinsic structural disconnection. So one of the things I'm trying to weave in these programs is a quality of presence that makes it possible for those more extraordinary conversations to emerge. There's a second thing, which is you just sort of slowly point people's attention to the common habits by which we deflect immediacy and intimacy, whether it's cynicism or sarcasm or deflective humor or inappropriate sort of high energy. All of that are ways to stay and hover above our immediate experience that we're having. So if you want to invite a group to have a different level of connection with themselves and with each other, you have to start just calling people's attention, not in a judgmental way, but in a sort of discerning and refined way. Notice what just happened. So-and-so said something really quite painful and important, and we went immediately into our heads. I'm wanting to just think about that right now Mm. in noticing what happened for us, even in our conversation. We have to come on pretty strong, pretty intellectual to explain about transformational leadership and what it's like. And these are the things that happen because we almost find our way as, well, for us as professionals, but now in the healing space, still having to speak the language of those whose attention you would like to attract to create enough safety with the same energy and language that can then be slowed down for something that is more more tender, more meaningful, more enduring. Yeah, I think that's true what you said. I think as a premise that that one has to make a sort of intellectual argument and give it an intellectual framework in order to have it take legitimacy in a business context or in a more traditional conservative context. That's true. I don't find it so disappointing, though. I think that it is important for those of us who are trained more psychologically to be willing to bridge our language to their world. It's a sort of first principle of organizing, you know, meet them where they are. It could also be one of the gifts, right? You speak the language. Right. So you can help navigate the terrain. I think that's right. And I think it also implies a standard of rigor for what we're doing. You know, how is this relevant to the business? How will this make this group of people a more effective team? How will this help the organization to meet its goals? I hold myself to a standard of commercial value as well as personal value. Um, If I was working as a private therapist, then of course you don't have to make that translation and you don't have to hold that level of uh, expectation. But I, I find it challenging and kind of crazy fun, actually, to think about 
making that translation from what could be more esoteric or psychological world into a very different context and still giving it not just legitimacy, but gravity in that new context. I do, too. It's one of my more favorite things to do as a lawyer, right? as a national trader in conflict transformation and negotiation, to really know that I have this incredible gift to be a navigator, to translate this legal, highly adversarial, positional bargaining and shutdown, transactional, get it done approach to an invitation to look a little bit deeper and not just to understand more the others whom you are working with and for, but to really take a look internally at yourself. I really honor, Louise, the pioneering work you and Erica and others are doing in that domain. I think it's every discipline is going to have to turn in this direction. I mean, it's as the world gets more complex and more adaptive. I don't think there's going to be any discipline of intellectual exploration that will not have to start looking at the interpersonal and interpersonal facets of their work. Mm. Amy, that is really profound to me because I think of anyone listening in, whatever their profession is or their job is, that they speak the language of that profession or that job, whether they're a carpenter or a nurse, and they can use that language to then invite a deeper exploration. I mean, what a different world we would have. Yeah, I really want to underscore this beautiful invitation you're making to any listener, wherever you are in whatever role or function you're playing, just ask yourself, how could I create more gratitude in my world today? How could I take an extra minute and really ask one of my colleagues what's going on in their life and pause and listen and suspend any need to problem solve or move on? How can I just become a wider and wider invitation to what really matters to me? And how can I become a wider and wider vessel of healing? That question could be asked by anybody, a teacher, a nurse, a construction worker, anybody. And that is a path we can create for ourselves on the development to being a transformative practitioner. Absolutely. It's really beautiful. I'm wondering, gosh, in your vast experience and your wisdom and your deep thinking, which I've always admired about you, Amy, is there anything different or unique about the developmental path of someone interested in healing? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, I have the privilege of training a lot of facilitators and coaches in this kind of trauma-informed work and in deep transformational depth work. I, I mean, I think the most important thing is to recognize that you are the instrument of the transformational process. And it's very unlikely you will accompany somebody in terrain or domains that you haven't investigated in yourself. So whatever time you spend on intervision, on supervision, on your own healing walk, on your own contemplative practices and reflective practices is time very well invested to become, you know, more and more of a glistening invitation to people to do this kind of self-exploration. So I think the biggest difference between being a professional healer and a lay person on a healing path is how devoted you have to be to having this, this inner life be the primary thing that you have your attention on. 
and it's a constant humility because all of us that are, you know, would might claim that we do healing work probably know better than anyone <laughs> how much of our own healing work we still have to do. And so to not not think either I have to be a finished product in order yes. to go out and be of service to people. That's not true. Um, but it's equally untrue that you can ignore your own gunk and keep going. You have to be sort of on the wheel of movement in this kind of inner integration work all the time and and sort of endlessly. It's kind of an eternal pledge, I think. You know, you, yes. when you, when you agree to be a healer, you yeah. sign your name on an unwritten <laughs> contract that says, I'm in. In blood. <laughs> in blood, I'm in. And it, it means I'm in, you know, I'm in for the joy and I'm in for the sorrow. Yeah. I'm in for the grief. I'm in for the terror. I'm in for the, you know, connection. I'm in for the love. And to just constantly... Um, widen your heart. I think that's really the most essential thing as a healer. And the second thing I would say is to create enough intuitive capacity that you can see the space between the letters of a text or the music underneath what someone's saying, that you start to have a refined sensitivity and receptivity to the subtle realms and subtle energetic exchanges. And that I think is a really important part of the craft that you you move from looking at sort of dense material reality to looking at the ephemeral and the energetic and, as you said, the divine. I've always wondered in my own work, my own self-work and my teachings, if the latter can be taught. And I, I think it can because, like Thomas said with both of us, the learner is there. It just simply needs to be awakened, all the learning is there. And we have this capacity and capability all along, all of us. Certainly, these are natural faculties, the faculty of intuition, the faculty of direct knowing, the faculty of subtle energetic observation, the faculty of somatic felt sense awareness and receiving. That's absolutely true. But you said a second thing, which maybe should be my third pillar of what it means to be a healer. It means you look for teachers. You look for true guides and people who have, you know, cultivated these capacities to a very evolved degree. And wherever possible, you put yourself in their orbit because you learn it through osmosis and transmission, not through intellectual content. And so it's this is a sort of body-to-body, field-to-field exchange. I've had the enormous privilege of working with a few really profound masters, and I credit them with almost anything I know how to do because it's it's an apprenticeship learning it's not a it is yes it's not a take a course and now i get it it's a workshop no it's not a weekend workshop it's not even a year long course it's years and years and and layering and new insights and at mobius i have the great privilege of uh hosting every year an annual gathering we call the next practice institute Uh, and i created that because of what you just said louise i wanted to create a training program that was interdisciplinary and deep enough to represent the multifaceted, multidimensional set of competencies it takes to be a transformational practitioner. And I thought, well, I'd have to create like a very complex graduate school. That would be long. And I thought, no, and that's never going to work. What if I created a week a year and, and asked everybody that's a practitioner at Mobius to come every year and take a different workshop? And over time, they would have exposure to the, you know, really interdisciplinary nature of our work. And so that's been a labor of love that we've put on for the last seven years. And we're hosting it the week of October 15th. So if anyone's listening, the keynotes are live and free on Facebook. You're most welcome to join us. And we'll have the honor of hosting Thomas teaching all day Wednesday. So we'll also stream that live for people. 
we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Thank you so much. And it's just a beautiful way to bring our interview to a close, this love, Amy, mm-hmm. that you have, have brought and are continuing to bring mm-hmm. into the corporate life is an aspect of trauma healing. Yes. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. What a joy to be with you, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. And reflecting on Amy Fox's remarkable journey, we've learned some valuable lessons. Her path reminds us of the power of passion and perseverance. Through her career in senior leadership consultancy, she realized early on the value of inviting corporate leaders to explore their inner life, which often revealed early trauma and presented new invitations for growth and for integration for leaders leading others who also model for many others how to do so in more authentic, more relational ways. Amy's diverse experiences from healthcare startups to collaborations with influential figures highlight the importance of adaptability and continuous exploration into the human psyche alongside negotiation work and leadership work. Her foray into psychotherapy as a corporate workshop leader underscores the value of leaders developing their emotional intelligence, empathy, and compassion as they navigate the corporate world as influential leaders. If you are a corporate executive or leader in your sphere of influence, what part of your interior life might be calling you to look harder or deeper? As we all look to the future, we're reminded that our journeys may take unexpected turns. And one of those turns might be inward to heal old, unresolved trauma that may be presenting itself as a blind spot we didn't even realize. Amy's exploration of trauma healing for leaders teaches us the significance of feeling whole so we can lead authentically. Thank you, Amy, as we find inspiration and guidance urging us to embrace our essential nature that can ignite the internal change we each need to learn more about ourselves, pursue our passions, and integrate so we can stay sustained as we continue our own journeys of growth and discovery. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.